Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Bruce Berger is the president at Bruce Berger Consulting. In this episode, we talk about what is motivational interviewing? Why is motivational interviewing so powerful? How well does motivational interviewing work in the new digital health landscape? And what is empathy and can it be learned? It was a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, hey, Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Zane? I'm doing great. Thank you for uh, taking time to talk to me. Um, I'm really excited about this episode because I think we're going to touch on a lot of um, interesting topics that I think a lot of people do not talk about enough. But before we get into that, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself for the people that don't know who you are? Sure. I'm, I'm a uh, pharmacist who uh, went back to school and became a, a health psychologist, basically. And uh, I'm a three-time graduate of the Ohio State University. We're required to say the the part. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm very interested. What, a lot of what I do is, is help healthcare professionals learn how to talk to patients in a way that increases the chance that they'll manage their illnesses as, a, as opposed to not being sure they want to. Yeah. And I think that's a great way of putting it. And I think it's, and then one thing that you, um, you're one of the pioneers of is motivational interviewing, right? Uh, so what is motivational interviewing for those who don't know? Well, it's, First of all, let me, let me just go back a little bit and say that uh, two clinical psychologists, or clinical psychologists in particular, William Miller, created it. And he created it uh, really serendipitously talking with uh, his clients were uh, substance abusers. And uh, back when he started this approach in the 70s, Tough love was the way that we dealt with people with substance abuse. And of course, because they're shame-based, it turned out it made things worse. Um, so he, he discovered a way of talking with patients, uh, in particular, you know, and with, with things like substance abuse, a lot of the patients don't really understand that they have a problem. They, they'll say things like, I can handle my booze. I can handle my whatever they're using and they're not okay and so he had to have a way to be able to deal with the ambivalence or resistance that the patient presented and he developed something called motivational interview and it's kind of a misnomer because with motivational interviewing we're not trying to motivate a patient again it was focused on people who are ambivalent or resistant to behavior change in particular about substances when i brought it into healthcare. We focused on behaviors related to managing chronic illness, like taking a medicine, losing weight, you know, and uh, or getting more physical activity. Um, and so, again, the focus is on ambivalent or resistant patients. Motivational interviewing is really two things. It's a set of skills, and it's a way of being. 
it's patient-centered or client-centered. And the purpose of motivational interviewing is not to motivate patients. It's to explore their motivation. So if you've got a patient who's taking their medicine, you know, their blood pressure medicine four days a week, we really want to explore what's keeping them from taking it seven days a week. And we don't do that by focusing on what they're not doing. We do it by focusing on what they are doing. In other words, if I call a patient up and I say, hey, Mr. Jones, we notice you're taking your lisinopril four days a week. You really need to take it every day, which is typically how people do these things. Uh, it's a negative call. And it's, it starts off negatively. But the patient, and not only that, the healthcare professional who says, hey, Mr. Jones, you really need to take it every day if you want to get your blood pressure down. They don't learn anything. But if I say, hey, Mr. Jones, I notice you're taking your lisinopril four days a week. That's a really good start at getting your blood pressure down. What's made it important for you to take it on those four days? I'm going to learn something about that patient's motivation, how they're making sense of what's happening to them. They're taking it. I want to know why, right? Training, the kind of training we do in school, though, tends to be very negative. We teach people to focus on non-adherence. Uh, and yes, we need to find out if there are barriers, but I want to find out why is the patient doing something rather than nothing? Something's motivating them. Yeah, no, and I think that that approach is, we're definitely not taught that in school. Um, I think that some of the best, no, I shouldn't say, some of the most enlightening conversations that I've ever had with patients is just asking them why, right? Not in a judgmental way, but just right. asking them like, hey, what's going on, why? Like I remember one time somebody wasn't taking their medications, they were taking like half of them. And I was like, what's going on, right? You know, hey, just just noticing like, you know, what's going on. And turns out that they couldn't afford the whole time. So they were just basically trying to eke out as much, as many days as they could, right? Like trying to make 30 day supply into a 60 day supply. So that to me, that, okay, we need to maybe find a cheaper drug. We need to maybe find mm -hmm. something else. Maybe, you know, like, so like, and you know, if you come out and ask them, because to, to us from the outside looking in, this patient is non-compliant. They were able to afford the medication because they, they have it. They're taking it, right? If we just if I just called them and said, hey, um, I noticed you are taking your medication all the time. Do you mind just please taking it more? I would have, you would have never come, you know, uncovered that issue, right? Right. And, you're, and, you know, part of the point you're also making is that you weren't dealing with a patient that wasn't motivated. You weren't dealing with a patient that didn't know they needed the medicine. You were dealing with somebody who simply couldn't afford it. And, and so part of what motivational interviewing is about also is teasing out for this patient, you know, approaching every patient uh, as, as what they are, individuals who have their reasons. We develop what is called a sense-making approach to motivational interviewing that's based upon exactly what you just said. People make sense of their situation. For this patient, because they couldn't afford the medicine, what made sense was a better off taking some of it than none of it. And, and so for another patient, what might make sense is, um, I feel worse taking this medicine than when I don't, right? So they may stop taking it. For another patient, it may be, I feel, I, I, I feel fine. My blood pressure doesn't bother me at all. What do I need the medicine for, right? And so we have to uncover 
how the patient's making sense. And that's part of what our sense making approach is. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So if somebody is trying to incorporate this, right, like what are, is there something easy that they can just start with as an exercise when they're talking to their patient? Like, is there like a question they can ask or like some sort of mindset? That, I mean, because like I said, this is not taught to us in school, right? We're, we're only taught to look at the negative. We're looking at, we're basically glorified computers in the sense that we're looking at patterns. If the pattern doesn't match, then we have yeah. a problem. And then to rectify that problem is to rematch the pattern, right? That's, that's really all we're, we're doing. Like, how do we change this mindset? Like, how is it, is it just practice? Is it just, do we have to teach? I, I mean, I know well, you, you teach, you teach right now. Like what, what do we need to do to change this? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, a complex question. Okay. <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll try to make it as, as simple as possible in the sense that there's good news. Couple, couple things. American, Co American Council on Pharmaceutical Education, for the first time in history, their new accreditation standards are going to include motivational interviews. So the schools are going to have to teach it. Let's hope they get people who know what they're doing to teach it, okay? Because um, oftentimes, social behavioral science gets short shrift in pharmacy curriculum. Second of all, we've donated, uh, I've donated my eight-hour e-learning program to the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacies so that any college of pharmacy that would like to teach motivational interviewing and use our e-learning program can call AACP and get it for free, okay? Now, and, and I have a book out <laughs> in second edition. But to, to generally answer your question, what do we need to do? You know, we're living in the age of mindset, right? We've got to change our, fundamentally, you can't do MI if you don't change your mindset. From your job is not to catch people doing things wrong. Your job is not to label patients non-compliant or non-adherent or difficult because they're not taking their medicine. They have, as you uncovered, they have their reasons. And our job, look, it's their illness. They have to decide whether they want to treat it or not. We can either get in the way or we can help them. And, I, and all I can tell you is if our mindset is, oh, I got to call that patient, they never take their medicine the way they're supposed to, we can't help them. We really can't because the patient will sense that. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves, why are we so annoyed that a patient's not doing what we asked them to do? Why, why are we annoyed? Uh, rather than let's find out what's going on and see if we can help. Let's see. We're not trying to persuade patients. We're trying to influence them. There's a big difference. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it starts with, it starts with seeing the patient as a person, not as an object. You know, if I, if I see you as the non-compliant patient or the diabetic rather than the human being who has diabetes, I'm going to have a really difficult time forming a relationship that's useful to you as the patient. That's actually a really interesting point because I think another thing that we learn in medicine, and I don't know if it's good. I mean, it's a mainly a defense mechanism, right? Uh, not to get too attached to our patients. And it's, it's weird because I remember being a student and I was watching a heart surgery uh, like open heart surgery. And I was standing next to the anesthetist and I was literally maybe a foot away from the patient's head. Uh, their face is covered, like their eyes are covered. Everything is covered outside of there, right? And 
this was like a three hour long surgery. I was there while they were prepping the patient. I was there during the whole thing, this, you know, and I never got the patient's name. And throughout the whole surgery, no one is acknowledging that this is a person. It's just a job. It is parts like, you know, kind of repairing a car. Right. And that was really the first time it ever hit me where I'm like, holy crap. Like I never, I was just looking at it as an experience, as a thing rather than a person. And, you know, and you know, my whole time in oncology as well. Right. Like it's, you know, we, we see a lot of death and despair, right. You know, it's just part of the nature of the job. Uh, but there's a lot of good that comes out of, I and mean, there's a lot of good that is in it as well, because the patients are amazing, uh, you know, so on. So, I mean, I don't, I've, I've talked about it before, but it's just, it's, it's just hard to get off that. Right. I mean, what do you think about that? I, 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 I think this whole idea of not becoming attached is really counter to mental health and, and meaning and here. And there's, first of all, there's healthy attachment and there's unhealthy attachment. In other words, uh, if, if, if I care about this person because they're a human being, look, we're, we're relational. You know, we, Zane, we need each other, you know, and there isn't anything you've done in your life or I've done in my life that hasn't been done without the help of another human being. Uh, so, so, you know, we need to see this person as a, as a living, breathing human being who has value, just like I do. And on the, so that's healthy. I want to have empathy for them. I want to be able to experience uh, their distress so I know how to help. On the other hand, an unhealthy attachment is when I feel like it's my job to save them. You know, uh, it's, my, it's my caring and saving are not the same thing. Fixing and saving are not the same thing. It's not my job to fix my patients. It's my job to let them know that I care about them and I care about their decisions and I care about their health, but ultimately it is their decision, not mine. I, I tell people all the time, we have it backwards. We think we're driving the bus and the patient's a passenger. The reality is the patient has always driven the bus. We're a passenger trying to influence the route. Yes, I have an agenda. I want my patients to have health, right? But it's not an agenda such that I feel like it's my job to save them if they decide they're not going to engage. You know, I'm going to do everything I can to get them to engage and to get them to choose health. But they ultimately decide. I don't. I could not agree more. I think the later on I got in my career, the more and more I, I, I started. Ha- I, I, I mean, I, I don't I didn't do it like. I didn't do it on purpose. It was just kind of like a maturing of me as a professional. Yep. And I got to the point where I was like, Hey, you know, and I, and I did the same thing with my students. And I mean, it's, it's, there are parallels to that. Right. Like where I would tell my students when they would come in, I'm like, Hey, I'm here. I get paid every two weeks. You're paying to be here. I will be here at, I will, I will run as far as you want me to run, but you have to run with me. You don't have to run right. as far as me, but like you, I'm going to be here as, as much as you need me or as little as you need me. This is up to you to utilize me and I'm going to he- be here to guide you. And I would tell them flat out, be like, Hey, I'm not here to fail you or anything. You're, this is your opportunity to learn and grow and be, and be a better professional and maybe find something that you never knew. And, and I think being a preceptor really helped me 
engaging with my patients because it, it's not that I had, had the same mentality with them, but in the sense like Kenny, what you mentioned, right? Hey, I'm going to be here. I would tell my patients, don't hesitate to call me. We'll be reaching out to you. I'm here. My job is to help you, not the other way around. Don't feel like you're bothering me. But when, when, when we're looking at your labs or whatever, and we're talking through things, I can only, I, you know, it's the whole thing. Like you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Like that's right. the same thing. Like we are trying to dunk the horse's head into the water and like in the same point, we're, right. we're drowning it. And then we're not even realizing. It. And I completely agree with you. We need to empower the patients more. We are so right. caught up in this healthcare system that is like, we're right. You're wrong. When it, like you said, it's the other way around. Like we have to see what works best for them. What, what, how can we structure health around their lifestyle? Because What's the point of calling it patient-centered care if we're not going to? Patient-centered care is one of those words that people use, and they, they just to get it just to get through the door. Maybe I'm being cynical, but they're just getting through the door knowing that it's not patient-centered care. Because patient-centered, right. if we had patient-centered care, healthcare, we would not be practicing healthcare the way we do. No, absolutely. And and you know when you asked the question about you know arm's length, you know we get we we got told as faculty when I first started as faculty do the same thing with students. It's crazy. And and then, and then it is called health care. It's not called health detachment, right? I mean, why even call it health care if part of our job is not to care? That's, That's crazy. Good, good question. Um, I think health care should not be an oxymoron. Yeah. You know? And I think a lot of times where people get burnt out is exactly what you had mentioned earlier. Like we're trying to, we should helping somebody and saving somebody are two different things. And I think right. we, all of us in healthcare have a hero complex to a certain extent. We all come in thinking that we can save everyone, save the world. We can change everything. And I think that, you know, when you have that intense attitude with every single patient and you see not, you know, you see yourself as a failure because if you can't save everyone, then you're like, Oh, maybe I'm not cut out for it. And then you go the exact opposite direction to where you're like, okay, I'm just here to just, you know, push meds or whatever and this and that. And like somewhere, like, like everything in life, we have to all fall in the middle of that. Well, the great, the great irony is um, when we give up, we have the best chance of helping. And, and what I mean by that, what I mean by that is when we let go of this idea of that I have the power here, and we, and we truly get that this is a meeting of experts. Meaning if, if you're my patient, even that, I don't even like you're my patient because that's you know, a possession. I'm saying if, if, you, if you're, you're the patient and I'm the healthcare professional, it's a meeting of experts. I don't know how to use my expertise until I understand yours. Until I understand how you're making sense of your diabetes or whatever your illness is. What does diabetes mean to you? How important is it to you to treat it? Uh, what are you willing to do? Here's three things you can do. Which of those things are you willing to work on? Uh, until I do that, I don't know how to help. And anybody that thinks they do um, is, is really living an illusion. So yeah. when I give up this illusion of control and I finally understand that you, the patient, are in control. I actually have a chance of helping. Yeah, because the other thing is like, you know, I used this example before where then the patient has, owner when you give patient the ownership of their healthcare, then they feel connected to it. Because right now what happens is they come to us, they're like, hey, can you fix me? Or fix, you know, like, 
when when like for example like when you're when you're renting a house versus a buying a house right when something goes wrong you pick up the phone hey the dryer died can you do it right can you can right. you fix it when it's your own personal house you are more invested in it because you know yeah. you might be living here for the rest of your life like anything goes wrong you you know you might have a leak here which if you're renting eh, whatever I'm, I'm gonna be gone three months but this is your house you want to fix it because you want it to be you know standing up moving forward and i think the same thing happens with healthcare is we take the power and the autonomy away from the patients right now and that is not helping them you know we think we're helping them because we're like hey we are the experts we know everything but like you said they're the experts of themselves right we don't know what they're going through what they're feeling what they're why they're doing what they're doing so we need to work with them you know we we bring our expertise they bring their expertise and together we can we can create a create something that will help them yeah how do we know how do i even know what this patient needs in terms of maybe education or information if i don't ask them first what they know you know i mean if i don't say to them tell me in your own words what does diabetes mean to you you know one patient says uh, oh gosh, doctor said, if I don't get my blood sugar down, I could go blind. I could have kidney failure. Well, that tells me a lot, right? Uh, and then they also say, I don't want that to happen. Another patient says, I don't know. The doctor says I have sugar, but I feel fine. So if we don't see those are two totally different patients to deal with, we're blind. And if we don't, if we also don't see with the second patient, we don't need to be correcting them. Just because you feel fine doesn't mean you are fine, right? We need, to, we need to be looking at them and saying, okay, so right now, because you're feeling fine, you're kind of wondering, why do you really need to do anything? And the patient says, right. And they also now know that I've listened to them, right? So now I can say, okay, would, would you mind? That's, that's, that sounds very reasonable. It's kind of like you're feeling like if it isn't broke, why fix it? And the patient says, right. And I say, would you mind if I share some thoughts with you? And I'd like to hear what you think. Now, this is conversational with the idea being the patient decides. Now, what I'm going to share with them is an analogy to help them understand how they can feel fine and still be at risk. Because what they're telling me is they don't know how they can feel fine and be at risk. That's what I've got to address. I don't need to address the etiology and progression of diabetes right now. I need to address how can they feel fine and still be at risk because that's going to be their motivation for change. Yeah, I agree. I think that because I've listened to that. Yeah, I think that. I mean, before every every time I would go in for a counseling session with a, for medication. I would always ask the patient, so what do you guys know about this medication? Because that would tell me a lot. If they came in with nothing, okay, fine. Like I have a, I shouldn't say clean slate, but I have to kind of be a little bit more, you know, 10,000 foot because I don't want to like throw everything at them. If they come in like, hey, you know, I talked to my doctor. I have to take it this many times. This is my dose, whatever. Okay, fine. Then I can get into more granular detail. If they told, if they're coming in with like, I shouldn't say, if they're coming in with some like wild statements, right? Like, hey, I heard this. I heard that. You know, I, I checked Google and did this. Then I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe I should start with answering their questions or their fears, where their fears are coming from. Mm -hmm. And then we can get into the medication, right? And, like, and, and treating them with respect, even yeah. though their fears may be unfounded, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, I have, I have countless, I mean, being in oncology, you know, just dealing the nature of the disease and the nature of the drugs, 
there's a lot of, I mean, in some cases we're literally giving them poison, right? Uh, so a lot of people and everyone knows somebody that's dealt with cancer. Good. Sometimes they had good experiences. Sometimes they had bad experiences, or sometimes it was just a, you know, middle of the road thing. And I think, and then also the word cancer brings a very emotional response with people. So you're already dealing with people that are extremely scared and right. they're, they have, and they've talked to everyone in their family about it and everyone's got their own little opinions. And that forced me to, you know, sit back and kind of listen to these people, listen to patients. And also it forced me to be a better practitioner because I had to really know what I was talking about. And not to say that I didn't know before, but in the sense of like, you need to have an answer to a question. You can't just make something up or just push right. it to the side. Because if you just push it to the side, you have now told them that they don't matter. And we're dealing with cancer. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with yeah. their life. We're dealing with life and death. So like, I really had to like be super perceptive and really listen to everything that's being said by everyone around them. And honestly, that made me into a better practitioner. It was really difficult when I first started, uh, but you know, everything is, and you, you learn and move, move, move on. Yeah. And, and, and see, and I would even say, even before I asked the patient, for example, what do you know about the medicine? I would, I would ask them, uh, let's, whether it's cancer or high blood pressure or diabetes or, or high cholesterol, I would say, your doctor, your doctors prescribe medication for you, for your cholesterol. What's your understanding of, of how important it is to treat your cholesterol? How important is it to you? to treat your cholesterol. Because look, I can educate them all, all, all I need to about the medication, but if their basic attitude is, I just don't think high cholesterol is that serious. They're not taking the medicine. You follow what I'm saying? I, wa I wanna know what their motivation is to manage this illness. Then we'll get to specifics. And without, without that motivation, I can tell them everything they need to know about the medicine or why they need to lose weight. But if the motivation to manage the illness isn't there, none of that other information matters. Yeah. You know, so there's two things. Patients have to believe that what they're doing is important, whether it's taking a medicine or losing weight, et cetera. And second, they've got to believe they can do it. So, you know, they've got to believe that if they've got to give themselves an insulin injection that a, the insulin injection is really important to really managing their diabetes, and they understand why it's important to manage their diabetes. And two, they are confident they can give themselves an injection or somebody can, right? And, and so uh, I find that in healthcare, we often jump right away to long explanations about the medication or the disease without asking the patient first, is it important to you? personally to manage your diabetes yes tell me more about that what's made it important to you because that that's part of what motivational interviewing is exploring that motivation yeah no i love it um so so you know i talk about digital health a lot you know tech in general so with the with the advent of telehealth coming through right you know we're increasing access great things right we're increasing yeah. access we're um you know reaching out to people that maybe never didn't have access to this kind of care but mm -hmm. also it's kind of, not kind of, it is taking some of the human element out of it, right? So how, and we've kind of discussed why, why you know, having the human element really drives home the point and can really help 
you know, because as humans, we need connection, right? That in the end of it all, we all need to be connected to something or someone. We always need help from something. How do you see the future of motivational interviewing or all this kind of in the tech world? Like, how do we not lose this, the soul of healthcare? Because for me, I always tell people like, hey, all these things are great, but in the end, healthcare is a people business. Mm -hmm. It's people to people. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot lose that connection. You can only supplement it. And if you're trying to get rid of, if you're trying to sever that bond, we're only hurting everyone, the clinicians, the providers, the caregivers, everyone involved in this situation, we're hurting them. Yep. I, I would say, first of all, it's a great question. I would say, uh, look, if they didn't have access before, then being able to talk to them on a phone is better, <laughs> right? And, and here's the beautiful thing about MI, uh, motivational interviewing. Um, the research shows that, that with motivational interviewing, without visual, like, first of all, a lot of patients, even, even with remote access, may, may have a computer to do what we're doing now and see each other. But even if they didn't, motivational interviewing's effectiveness does not drop off in any appreciable way by simply phone. And a lot of it is because of the things that we do in MI. With an MI, with MI, I would never say to a patient, I understand. Do you know why? First of all, I don't decide whether I understand, you do. So, so that when I say to you, I understand, it's presumptive. Second of all, when I say I understand, what do you know that I understand? Who knows, right? So with MI, I wouldn't say to you, I understand, or I hear you, which is stuff we hear all the time in healthcare. I would say, you're really worried about what's going to happen. You're really worried that even if you treat this, it's not going to get better. In other words, I am going to verbalize what it is I'm hearing, the emotional part and the, and the actual experience part so that you know that I know. Now, the other thing that that does is gives you an opportunity to let me know whether I got it right. You know, you know the expression, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. <laughs> if, if I don't get it right, if I say I understand, and we both presume that I understand, and I really don't understand what your issue is, I head off down a road and we waste each other's time. But if I say, you're worried that even if you treat this, that it may not get better. And so you're wondering, do I really want to go ahead and expend all that energy? And you say to me, right, now I know we're on the same path. And you know, I know, right? Okay. So that's one thing because with them, so with MI, even if we're talking and not seeing each other, most of the nonverbals don't drop off because I'm saying stuff out loud that I wouldn't say before, even face-to-face, -face, okay? The other thing about MI is, again, because, because we're exploring with the patient, uh, you know, we're able to get, we're able to get more information than, than we were even face-to-face -face using traditional methods of talking. Uh, the, the other thing that I love about MI, especially in terms of, uh, digital health and things that are coming 
I, I was I was the only speaker at a digital health national digital health conference not too long ago. Everybody else had gadgets, okay, and and just like just like telehealth and te telepharmacy or telemedicine, this stuff is wonderful. It it, it 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 increases access. It increases our ability to to get data to be able to see what's going on with the patient. Well, this one guy had invented a. Uh, a maintenance inhaler for asthma that had a computer chip in it, and that chip could tell a pharmacist or a physician whether the patient's inhaler technique was good and how often they were using the, the, the maintenance inhaler, right? Now, where's MI important? We don't want this to be seen as big brothers watching. We want this to be seen as we've got a computer chip so we can assist you, not, not so we can say, hey, you're not doing this right and you're not doing this often enough. Ultimately, that's your decision. And I'm always gonna tell you why I'm concerned, but using MI, I can bring this to a patient and, and not say to them, hey, you're not using this right. I can say, I noticed from the computer chip that you're not getting as much medicine to the lungs as you should be, you know, can we talk a little bit about how you're using the medicine so we can see whether your technique helps you get the most medicine to your lungs? And then I can review also, what's your understanding of why that's important? So, so to me, MI enhances all of this uh, because, because of the way it's constructed. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I think that, yeah, and I agree with you. I think that acknowledging people, I think, we in healthcare don't do a good job of acknowledging the patient's fears and um, their emotions, right? We're just trying to get to the next, you know, kind of what you said. I understand, right? To me, right. you know, when you hear I understand, it's just like, all right, let's move on. You know, let's let's kind of move on to the next thing. Like, I got it. Let's let's keep going, right? Like, we don't like it when it's done to us, right? When somebody, when we're having yeah. a conversation, we're, we're like really distraught. And somebody says, yep, I got it. The first thing you're thinking like, what do you mean you got it? Like, you still haven't helped me, right? Like, you don't know what the problem is. I was talking to a, a cell phone company one day, and everybody on that company has been trained to say, I understand to the customer when there's a complaint. And I always say, when they do that, what is it you understand? <laughs> see, because do you, you see how presumptive it is to say, I understand? It's not up to me to decide whether I understand. It's up to the patient to decide, have I understood? And they can't do that unless I tell them specifically what I think I understand. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, I, I think that that's the one thing I think we try to, I mean, there's a lot of things going on, right? Like we don't have enough time in healthcare. So there's that part of it. Let's, you know, sure. like we, we have to like condense all these conversations that really should be over an hour into like five, 10 minutes, right? Because, you know, Hey, we're getting only getting reimbursed for 15 minutes or 30 minutes. You know, if you go any longer, that's, you know, you're not getting paid for that. We're losing money. Like, and that's a whole other conversation of like, you know, healthcare is a business. Is it, can it work? Can it not work? But like, there's that aspect of it. But I think also you can, you can still get all this information and still fit it in an amount of time. If you know the right cues and how to interview properly, if that makes sense. Yep. It's a and skill. I, it's I, a skill. I agree with you. And, and, and I have an answer to the, to the whole time thing too. Why, why we should uh, allocate a little bit more time. I'll give you a perfect example of it. We had a woman whose daughter 
had been in the emergency room already three times this year, three times in the previous year. She had come to this. We had a, a pharmacy at the at the university where um, one farm. We had two pharmacies: one for students, one for faculty and staff. And this person was a a, a staff member whose daughter had asthma. Well, ten year old daughter. Daughter kept going to the emergency room. And when we, the, the reason we found out about this is the mother kept coming in early for the rescue inhaler. Mm. And, we, and we said, hey, we noticed you, you're coming in early for the rescue inhaler. Are you having any trouble with the chronic inhaler? And here's what the mother said. Remember before you said about beliefs that patients have that are erroneous? Okay, here's what she said. Listen, I, I looked up the, the maintenance inhaler medication online and it said it's a corticosteroid. I, my daughter is not taking a steroid. I am not going to have a little girl taking a steroid. And just so you know, I smoke, but it doesn't affect her because I smoke outside. Right? Now, what's our temptation right away? <clears throat> wrong on both counts, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, wrong. It's not, it's not a steroid like you're thinking, and your smoking does affect her because it gets on your clothes, right? And what I did is I looked at her and I, this woman had been scolded throughout the healthcare system. Remember what I said, her daughter had been in the emergency room three times this year. What is that costing the healthcare system? Three times last year, because she's been scolded and told it is not a steroid like you're thinking. She needs to take it and you're, you need to quit smoking. Your smoking is bad for her. Okay. I looked at her, and by the way, my total conversation length with her was six and a half minutes. For the next four years, the daughter was not in the emergency room. Now, do we want to keep doing one-minute scoldings that don't save any money, in fact, cost the healthcare system money, or do we want to know how to talk to this woman in a way that changes behavior? And I looked at her and I said, I, I said to her, it's obvious that you care a great deal about your daughter. You're worried about her taking a medicine, a steroid that you're worried can harm her, being, especially being a female, and you're working hard to keep your smoking away from her by smoking outside. She looked at me and she literally went, right. Meaning, wait, you're not going to beat me up. Right. And I, and I said, and I said to her, do you mind if we talk a little bit about the medicine that you're worried about with the steroids? And she said, okay. And she was skeptical and she said, but I still may not have her use it. I said, you're her mother. You ultimately decide what's best for your daughter. And she said, okay. And she relaxed. Right. And I said, the medicine in, in your daughter's chronic inhaler, which is called a corticosteroid, and that's what you read about online, is in the same huge family as the steroids you're worried about, and those are called anabolic steroids. But I, I wanna draw an analogy. Grapes and watermelons are both in the same family, fruits, but they're extremely different, right? And I said, it's the same way with these, even though they're in the same huge family, 
This corticosteroid reduces the inflammation in your daughter's lungs and does not have the steroid effect that you're worried about that could about masculinizing your daughter. And, and she went, oh, and I, and I said, so I really believe that if she used the chronic inhaler every day, she'd get the benefit of reducing the inflammation in her lungs so she doesn't have to use the rescue inhaler as often. And there's something else I want to talk to you about. She said, what's that? Now, she was now open because nobody scolded her, right? And I said, I really like that you're working hard to keep your smoking away from her. But I, and I do want you to know, though, that your smoke gets on your clothes. And if, you, if you're next to her or you hug her, because her lungs are super sensitive because she has asthma, that smoke on your clothes can trigger her. Now, if she uses the chronic inhaler every day, the smoke may not trigger her, but it might. And I want you to pay attention to that. And she said, so you're saying that even if she used that, me smoking outside could still hurt her. And I said, it's possible. And she said, well, then I want to quit smoking. And I'm not making this up. And I see this stuff all the time, Zane. It's if we start off with her as you're wrong, you're hurting your kid. No wonder your kid's in the emergency room three times a year. We're getting nowhere with this woman. And that's what happened. So, so again, I say to healthcare, do you want to spend six minutes with this person and quit scolding her and acknowledge why is she doing what she's doing to protect your daughter? Right? She's not a bad mother. She's misguided, but she's not a bad mother. She's trying to protect your daughter. As soon as I acknowledge that, you can watch her relax. Yeah. No, I, 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 powerful. I think, I mean, I've had interactions like that, not like to that extent. I've, I've been, I guess I have helped people quit smoking, but um, I think that knowing, telling people that they're not terrible human beings goes a long way. Acknowledging the fact that, hey, I know you're trying, right? Because there's one thing that we were taught when I was younger, right? Everyone has their own journey. Some people are sprinting. Some people are crawling. Some people are walking. Some people are just standing still. Sometimes you move backwards. Sometimes you move forwards. But in the end, we're all in the same lanes and we're just trying to go forward, right? And I think we forget that along the way. You know, we get cynic cynical, yeah. whatever, along the way. And I've noticed that in my own career, like just acknowledging the fact that, hey, I see that you're trying. I acknowledge well, I that you're you trying. I know you care about your yeah. daughter. You don't want her hurt. Yeah. You know, if you want, you know, it's very obvious to me that you care about your daughter. You don't want her taking something that you're worried about harming her. And you notice I say that out loud because I want her to get that I see it. I want to be explicit. One of the things that MI, this is one of the reasons MI works even over the phone, because I'm going to be explicit about what I, what I'm hearing and observing. And, and there's empathy in there also, isn't there? There's me caring about her and seeing how hard she's trying. And, you know, one of the first things I actually didn't tell you, I started the conversation by, you know, she's been in the emergency room three times this year. What's this been like for you? She's a mother. She says, it's just hard to see her gasping. And I said, sounds like you'd want to do everything. You, you want to do whatever you can. You just don't want her harmed by the medicine. And she said, yes. She's ready to listen. Yeah. 
I think that, and like I said, I mean, I've had encounters like that uh, throughout my career, and it's just a matter of just asking and understanding, acknowledging their fears and telling them, hey, you're not crazy. You just don't know, have the whole, you don't just have all the information. I understand why you think what you think with the yeah. information that you have. I acknowledge that. Hey, how about this? Let me, let me tell you a little bit more and let's see if that helps you out a little bit. And then usually, like you said, once you get their guard down and once they realize that, hey, I'm here to help you, not just get you moving around, people, they listen. They listen. We've had, I've had, quote unquote, you know, the most, I was told one time, man, this person is just unwilling to take this medication. She's got this cancer. You know, you know, the doctor tried a couple of times, the nursing staff, multiple nurses have tried. And they're like, hey, Zan, do you want to try? And I was like, okay, fine, sure. And like before, I'm one of those people that I learned very young, early in like college and high school is like, don't believe the hype. Everyone comes in with their own biased perspective, good or bad. And I was like, okay, let me just see what happens, right? I'm just going to go in. This is just a lady with cancer right. and she's got something going on and I just need to come. So I went in there. I asked her like, hey, uh, you know, I'm here to talk to you about the medication. But before we start, you know, I was told that you're afraid to start, you know, what is it? What, why are you afraid? You know, yeah, tell me more. And then she kind of listed off all the side effects. And I went through each side effect one by one. I'm like, okay, let's talk about all these things. I broke it all down. And then I was like, okay, now that we've talked about this, what else, what else are, what is, what other things are you apprehensive about? And she just kept going and I just kept answering her questions and telling her that she's not crazy, right? This is a human being with cancer. She's going through stuff and I don't have cancer. So I can't sit here on my horse telling her, Hey, you know, do what I tell you. Like, this is her life, not mine. And in the end, I told her, hey, and this is before we, I even talked about my whole spiel with the medication. I was like, I will let you know. I understand you're scared with this medication. I understand you're, you're, you're afraid of all the side effects. I will tell you that this is a medication that's given to a lot of, a lot of different patients. And the extent of side effects are different per thing. But these are the main side effects that patients experience. And I listed off the three or four that are there. But, and then I said, for these side effects, we can treat it with this, this, and this, and it's very effective. And I will also tell you this, that I'm a pharmacist here sitting in this clinic. There are other pharmacists sitting here in this clinic, and we are here from whatever it was, 7 to 4.30 or something. And you can call us at any time and say, I want to talk to a pharmacist because I have a question. And this, you can call us literally every day, every hour, whatever you want. We are always going to be here. So you are not on this journey alone. We are here to help you on this journey. And she just like looked at me and she's like, all right, I'm ready to take it. And the nursing nurse, the nurse looked at me and she's like, like, just like jaw to the floor. And, I, and to me, that's not anything different. Like to me, that's how I approach all of it. And then after the thing, she's like, I don't know how you did it, but you did it. And she tells the doctor and the doctor was like, holy crap. Wow. Thank you. And now to me, it was just like, you know, understanding why she's afraid. Like no one asked her why she's scared. You know what? I want to, I want to, I want to verbalize how you did it. Okay, because I want I want people listening to the podcast to know what it is that you did. Okay, you put a name to the emotion she was feeling, and and this I can't tell you how critically important this is. You said to her, "I know you're frightened by all the side effects, and and you're afraid because you've got cancer." Naming the see if. If you name the emotion she's feeling and you're right, you know what you're offering her? Hope. Yeah. Oh, if you don't name the emotion, how does she know you understand? 
You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It, that, that simple act of naming the fear that she had about the side effects said to her, this guy gets it. He gets me. And then on top of it, what you did is you then said, I want to go over each of these major side effects. And we're going to talk about how to minimize. It. So you didn't just name the emotion. Then you said, and I'm going to show you how we can minimize the impact. Why would she not listen? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. But but a lot of times, what we, what we do is we we almost look. I know you're afraid, but you want to get your cancer under control. You got to take the medicine. As soon as you say "but," I I I have an expression that we have to get the butt out. As soon as we say "but," we have negated what we just said. If I say to you, "You're doing a good job," but. What are you what are you gonna take away from the conversation? Everything that's the after butt the butt. <laughs> yeah. If I say to you, you're really doing a good job, I would like to see you do this even more. Does that negate the, that you're doing a good job? Not at all. And so those are the kinds of things that you were doing in that conversation, which is motivational energy. And being able to know name the emotion is part of what it means to be empathic. And, and that's just critically important, which is different, by the way, than sympathy. Yeah. You, didn't, you weren't feeling sorry for her. You were feeling with her. Yeah. And I think that's a good segue into what I want to talk about with, uh, you know, a couple of minutes we have left. You know, what is empathy and can it be learned? Uh, yes, it can be if, if there's a willingness. In other words, uh, again, they're... they're there are people that really have difficult time with feelings, you know, and if they have a difficult time with, with the patient's feelings, it's because they have a difficult time with their own. They, they've learned somehow or other that certain feelings are weak and certain feelings are strong. You know, fear is weak, right? Uh, anxiety is weak. Stress is weak. And, and feelings are, are nothing, feelings are nothing more or less than feedback about how we're navigating. In other words, a feeling comes up as a result of me assigning meaning to what's happening to me. If I'm feeling afraid, it's because I've assigned meaning to what you've said or a situation that says fear to me. You didn't cause it. It's my meaning. It's instructive because if I, if I learn that feelings are, are feedback that are cre about how I'm navigating, then I can ask myself, okay, what meaning did I ascribe to what you did? Or what meaning did I ascribe to this situation? And is that meaning accurate? Can I relook at it? Here, here's another th way of looking at it. If feelings are the result of the meaning that I assign to what's being said or done to me, Who's giving birth to my feelings? Me. Does that make sense? Yeah. What do you do with children you give birth to? Take care of them. That's right. What do you do with feelings you give birth to? I mean, do you, you cast them aside and say, I don't like those. Those feel negative. They're, they're all mine. <laughs> you, you follow what I'm saying? This yeah. helped me when I'm feeling anxious or something to now say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to cast that aside. 
I may, I may not look at it in that moment, but later on, I'm going to say, what was it I was thinking that made me feel anxious yeah. so I can learn? Now, what is empathy? Empathy is feeling with another. To do that, you do you know the expression tabula rasa? I do not. Blank slate. I have to become tabula rasa. And what I mean by that is, I cannot be empathic if I have a preconceived notion of how you should feel in response to something that's happening to you. I have to be an open book. I have to act as if I know nothing about the world or how people respond. And I'm an open slate to hearing, what does this mean to you? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely yeah. doesn't. So that, so that if you're feeling anxious, if I look at you and say, you don't need to feel anxious, I might as well say to you, listen, stupid, right? If I say, tell me more about what's got you feeling anxious, I'm going to learn something, right? So empathy is feeling with somebody, but in order to learn to be empathic, I can teach you the words. I can teach you what, what, what are empathy words and empathy expressions, but you've got to be courageous enough to allow yourself to feel what somebody else is feeling. And, and I use the word courage because if you do not allow those feelings in you, you won't allow them in somebody else either. I heard somebody say today, uh, when people cry, it's worse than when they, when they get angry. And I'm like, it's only worse if you, don't let, if you, if you feel helpless. If, if you know that all you've got to do when the person's crying is to, is to ask them, how are they feeling? You know, you know I see your... I, I said, are you feeling sad? Are you distressed? Tell me more about what's going on, right? Uh, and then when they tell you, then you name it again. Okay, so it is, you're feeling really distressed. There's just a lot of stuff that feels out of control right now. That's empathy. That's allowing myself to experience the feelings of another. Yeah, no, and I think that it's, I think as us as humans, um, are not, I mean, there's very few people that can do that. I think, um, naturally, I think like, I, I do think empathy can be taught because I think children do yeah. it naturally because they we haven't, te we teach it out of them. Yeah, we do. Children are natural empaths. Mm -hmm. You ever watch, ever go to an airport, watch a little kid cry and watch another little kid looking at them cry and look at their eyes. They have the same sadness. They mirror it. We drink, we drum it out of them. Yeah. That's we, a sad thing. We, so drum, we have to retrain it. We drum out, drum out a lot of things, uh, creativity, yes. individualism, everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah, everything do. that makes us great, makes us amazing as human beings. For some reason, we try to remove that from ourselves. Well, and, 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 you know, again, one of the things I said early on is we're relational, right? We're, we're hard, hardwired relational. And that, that could be a whole other project uh, about how that happens. There's good news and bad news. We, we need relationships. We, you know, we, there is no I. I'm an I in relationship to another human being, okay, always. The bad news is we sometimes believe people over ourselves. You know, we, we, we take what they're saying is more important about who I am than I, I believe about myself. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be open to input 
you know, uh, but I decide. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, and that's something that I think all of us struggle with. I mean, me included, I struggled yeah. with it a long time. Like, you know, um, my value was in others rather than myself. Right. I never saw the, I never saw my value because my value was connected to everyone ar around me. Right. Um, it wasn't until very recently where I was like, no, I am, I am valuable. And it's, it's stupid to say out loud, right. It's dumb. And, you know, it sounds dumb to, but you it's know, not. it's, it's, you are. yeah, it's important, right. It's important for, for everyone to verbalize their value to themselves. It's and, no dumber than saying this is a cup <laughs> yeah. or, or a, a container. I Ex mean, it is, exactly. you are valuable. And, and the same thing goes with our patients or your customer or whatever. You need to make them feel valued and you need to make them feel like they're part of the process. They are the process, not just part right. of it. They are the process and you are just there to turn the key or just move them along or just fix their flat tire so they can continue on this this road. And I think that's the biggest thing that we all miss. And, and it's, and, and the good thing about all of this is, you know, I just mentioned that we rip everything out that's good in humanity from us when we're kids. The other amazing thing about humans is we are, we are able, our ability to change and adapt. So it's never too late to go back to those no, states. We're pretty as, resilient. Exactly. So that's why I think like empathy can be taught. All these things can be taught. Like you can, you can teach somebody to interview better. You can teach somebody to interact better. You can teach somebody to feel what they're feeling, right? I mean, that's the whole thing behind, you know, seeing a therapist because it's somebody that you don't know in your circle that's not judging you, right? They're allowing right. you to be you. And that's why it works, right? I mean, it could work with people around you if you have somebody like that around you, but many of us don't, right? Many of us, like I said, we're all biased in some way, shape or form. And that's why that works is because they're coming at you with a non, hopefully in a non-judgmental way. Well, and part of, I think what makes you a good pharmacist is, is that you, because I don't know your background about how you grew up, but you, you know, you grew up, you, I'm saying you came to the fact that you're valuable. So you're now, now you can hold on to that while at the same time, when you see a patient who's afraid or anxious, you know what that's like. So, so that allows you to be empathic. And, and so in some ways it's become your gift. Yeah, no, uh, no, I used to, you know, I used to look at it as, uh, like everyone, right? Like being getting, you know, connecting with people or something. It's like a, it's a weakness, right? Being humble, being em empathetic in our society is looked at as, as a weakness. And I used to treat yeah. it as such. And until I got older and I really saw what weakness truly is, you know, you, you don't understand, right? You know, when you're younger, you're, you, you see yeah. all these things around you, like, you know, fake bravado, macho-ness, whatever, whatever name you want to put to it. Right. And then right. when you get older and you see what these people turn into, and I'm not saying that in a judgmental way or whatever, but like you see, they, you, you see them struggling with the it, same it thing. Yeah. It doesn't serve them. And the, the ones that are the healthiest or the ones that are, is just the people that are just themselves and they're just happy with who they are. And it just is what it is. Right. And it took me a long time to get to this point. Um, but you know, I'm still, I'm still working on it as everyone else is. We're and, a work in progress. Oh. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, how do people get a hold of you if they want to uh, continue the conversation? Um, they can, uh, well, they can find me on LinkedIn, uh, and, and they can, uh, send me a message on LinkedIn or my email address is B like my first name, Bruce Berger, B E R G E R consulting at gmail.com. So B Berger consulting at gmail.com. If they want to get a, a hold of me and, uh, I do webinars and I do workshops and all that kind of stuff. So 
Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed this thing. Yeah, no, I, I think I could, I, I think we could talk for hours and hours. Uh, this is a, this is a part of healthcare that I think doesn't get talked enough about and it needs to be talked more. And, uh, you know, and, and as the digitizing of healthcare continues and the consumerism of healthcare continues, um, I think we need to hold on to this aspect more and more. Um, and my goal, my hope is that the less we have to do on the administrative part, the more we can do on this part. And that's my whole thing with health tech is, hey, take away all that stuff. So it gives me time to this, to do these, the thing that we were just talking about, right. getting to the root cause of the problems and really helping our patients, our customers, whatever you want to call them, uh, to, to reach their goals, right? Because it's not our goals, yeah. it's their goals. We want them right. to reach their goals. What it means by patient-centered. Exactly, <laughs> yep. And that's what it means, guys. If you're trying to create something patient-centered, that's what it means to be patient-centered. Right. But thank right. you, Bruce. I really appreciate your time. Okay. I appreciate it too. I had fun. <laughs>